An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. So I'm starting to think about what the most important stories of the year will be. How will we remember 2022, five, 10, 100 years from now? One good place to start is to think about where we were one year ago. We had Ann Applebaum on the podcast to talk about her essay, The Bad Guys Are Winning. And I think you could have make the argument that that was the most important story in geopolitics one year ago, that across the world, you saw this eerie and spooky rise of authoritarianism. You saw it in Russia, in China, in Turkey, Venezuela, India, and even here in the US, authoritarianism was ascendant. Illiberalism was rising. Anti-democratic forces were assembling along the right wing of the Republican Party, and along the western border of Ukraine. And this followed decades of what political scientists had already been calling a democratic recession. That is, the number of democracies in the world was actually declining, and the quality of liberal democracies around the world was declining as well, as you saw these authoritarian populists on the rise in Europe, Asia, and again, right here in the U.S., where, as everybody listening knows, an outgoing president told his followers that an election had been stolen out from under him and cheered from the White House as they invaded the Capitol to do a bunch of mischief. So if you were to stop the clock at the beginning of 2022 or in the spring of 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine, what would you say the most important story in geopolitics was? It was the rise of the authoritarians. But at this very moment, 
today, in December of 22. I think the opposite narrative is the most important story in the world. The fall of the authoritarians. What am I talking about? Well, look at China, where the ruler Xi Jinping and his zero COVID policy is sparking a wave of protests as that economy tumbles into a recession. Look at Russia, which is losing a war to an opponent one quarter of its size. Look at Iran, which is suffering its own massive protests for women's rights. 30 years ago, the political scientist Francis Fukuyama wrote a very famous, very misunderstood book. It's called The End of History and the Last Man. And many people took that title to mean that liberal democracy marked the final, ultimate, most successful system of government in world history. Nothing else would supplant it as a clear global model. And every time some global authoritarians seemed to be on the come up, it was guaranteed, guaranteed, that someone would take to their blog, cable news, Twitter, whatever, and say, aha, Fukuyama is wrong. History isn't over. Liberal democracy hasn't won. The bad guys are winning. But maybe one of the most important stories, one of the most important lessons of 2022 is that in the biggest picture, Francis Fukuyama was right. There is something astonishingly resilient about liberal democracy. And when you look at the current chaos in China and the current failure in Russia and the current protests in Iran and even the dismal performance of those crazy anti-democratic MAGA right-wingers in America, what you are seeing is in fact proof that Fukuyama's prophecy was right. Today's guest is Francis Fukuyama. In this episode, we travel the world and take a first-class tour of what's happening in China, Russia, Iran, and the U.S. We fold it into a brief history of democracy and authoritarianism in the 21st century, and we end with some thoughts on the future of liberalism in this country. It is a lot to pack into 40 minutes, but damn did I learn a lot. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Francis Fukuyama, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. I want to start with your very famous and very misunderstood book, The End of History and the Last Man. I think it's absolutely fascinating how many people have not read your book who claim to know what this book is about because the title makes them feel something very strongly. So you'll sometimes see these essays that claim that you said nothing will happen anymore after 1992, no more interesting stuff will occur, no more global conflicts or domestic turmoil. Let's just set the record straight at the top of the pod. In your own words, what was the thesis of this book? Well, I think the misunderstanding uh, is a misunderstanding of the words in the title. So history does not mean events. Uh, it's history with a capital H. Uh, you could speak of this uh, alternatively as development or modernization. It's the long-term progress of human societies. And end does not mean termination or cessation. It means goal or objective. And so the real question in the book, uh, and, and by the way, the phrase, the end of history, was not mine. It was that of the philosopher Hegel. 
uh, who was the first historicist philosopher who posited that there was something like a progressive history of mankind. And, uh, you know, this idea was taken up by Karl Marx, who said there is history and there's an end of history, and that end of history will be a communist utopia. And so what I was arguing back in 1989 was that I, too, believed that there was progress. There was this long-term historical process, but it wasn't leading to communism. It was leading to liberal uh, democracy tied to a market economy. Uh, And that, uh, you know, was what the argument was about. Uh, And I think that, you know, the real question uh, that I was trying to pose is, is there a higher stage of history? You know, is there another form of society the way that communism was purported to be a higher stage of human civilization that we can look forward to out there? And I would say that, you know, 30 years after that original article, more than 30 years, I don't see one. So in that sense, I still, you know, believe that, uh, you know, the the historical trends are pointing in, in the direction of liberal democracy. So it's it's an evolutionary argument, like the the, the, the same way that the, you know the, whatever the 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 egg turns into a larva, which turns into a chrysalis, which turns into a butterfly. The butterfly does not turn into anything else. The butterfly doesn't turn into a grasshopper, and it doesn't turn into a monkey. The butterfly is the end of that evolutionary process. And you were similarly arguing that the end of the evolution of development systems that went through feudalism and went through all of these different forms of capitalism tied maybe to totalitarianism or other kinds uh, of political economies, that, that we had reached the end of that process with liberal democracy. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I, I would actually stated in a somewhat less strong form, uh, I didn't see uh, an alternative that would make me think that this evolutionary process was going to continue beyond liberal democracy, but I was open to the possibility that that's the case. But, you know, I still honestly don't see it. I don't think we're all evolving towards a Chinese-style system or an Iranian-style system, certainly not a Russian uh, type of system. So in that sense, I think that, uh, you know, the absence of competitors uh, leaves us stuck with liberal democracy as really the only realistic alternative for modern society. Uh, and this is a thesis that because the title was so strong, the end of history, people have been consistently trying to overturn it and show that it's wrong. So the book comes out in the early 1990s. This is a period of jubilation about the prospect of liberal democracy. It's the end of the Cold War. Liberal democracy seems to have triumphed against communism. But then in the last few decades, since the turn of the 21st century, we've had what some people call a democratic recession. According to the VDEM project and other organizations that try to measure the state of democracy around the world, authoritarianism has been rising, not just in Asia, but throughout the globe. Why do you think, by various measures, it has been a rough century so far for liberal democracy? Uh, Well, actually, I think the uh, shift came in about 2008, around the time of the um, U.S. subprime financial crisis, which in a way represented the peak of this period of American hegemony in uh, world politics and in the global economy uh, and the like. And uh, the recession has really kicked in uh, in the, you know, whatever, 16, 17 years since then. Uh, I think that there are a lot of causes for this. Uh, I think that, you know, it's 
first of all, uh, unnatural that the world be so unbalanced with one hegemonic power. And so you've had the growth of China and Russia and other, you know, other uh, uh, places that have different uh, models. Uh, and I think um, that liberal democracy was also interpreted in ways that, in a way, undermined its own legitimacy. Uh, so, for example, uh, I don't think that the kind of quote-unquote neoliberal policies that were pursued from the Reagan administration onwards that emphasized uh, you know, pretty much unconstrained free markets is necessarily the implication of, you know, classical liberalism. And yet many people interpreted it that way uh, because of the, you know, retreat of the state, uh, deregulation, privatization. You had the growth of a lot of inequality. And uh, that started to pile up. And I think actually one of the reasons that the turnaround occurred in 2008 was because of that financial crisis, which was the direct result of, you know, deregulating financial markets in the United States and Europe and other places that really destabilized the system and then led to a political delegitimation of uh, a market economy and uh, democracy. Uh, and then, um, you know, it had a big social impact as well because a lot of working class people in rich countries were... Uh, affected by the outsourcing of jobs to China, to Vietnam, to other parts of the developing world. Uh, and I think all of that growing inequality and the fact that many uh, people had been left out of the economic growth in that period uh, laid the ground for the rise of populism, which, you know, is democratic in the sense that it represents, you know, popular will, but it's not necessarily liberal, uh, you know, that... Uh, Populist leaders were elected, like Donald Trump or Modi in India uh, or Orban in, in Hungary, who said, well, I was legitimately elected and the people want me to you know, make them great again. And here's a court, here's a journalist that's preventing me from doing this, and I'm going you know, to overpower them. Uh, and so I think that was one of the origins of the kind of populist nationalism that we've seen uh, in, you know, in many countries around the world in the last decade. So we're racing a bit through the 21st century, but basically you have this bright period of unipolar hegemony of the United States between about 1992 and 2008, where liberal democracy doesn't seem to have any kind of backsliding. It is clearly sort of dominating as a model for the world. But after the global financial crisis, you start to see cracks in the edifice. In the U.S., the legacy of, of neoliberalism is discredited around the world. Populist movements are surging. You mentioned India, China, Hungary. Um, let's take us to the beginning of 2022, because this is really where things come to a head. And it seems like this spring, the thesis that liberal democracy is going to be the end, the, um, the, the, the goal of history is really coming in for a beating. Russia invades Ukraine. Um, seems at some points to be uh, really, really close to conquering its neighbor, getting close to Kiev. People start to worry, including you, I believe, that if Ukraine falls, maybe Russia will continue to expand its empire. It could embolden China to swing into Taiwan and try to conquer that, um, that liberal neighbor. Tell me what you were thinking. Yeah, well, I mean, even, even, short, of, even short of a Taiwan invasion, I think that you know, China looked like it had mastered the COVID crisis, that uh, everybody in the Western world was suffering 
under COVID, but the Chinese seem to be doing very well. And both Russia and China were putting out a narrative that said that Western uh, liberal democracy was obsolete, uh, was a declining uh, you know, form of government, and that they represented the future. Uh, to everything that you said, I think that the other big dark cloud on the horizon was what was going on in the United States, because on January 6th, 2021, you had an effort by an outgoing president to stay in office illegally. Uh, he basically was uh, provoking an insurrection against the United States uh, to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, which was unprecedented in American uh, history. Uh, and, you know, the Republican Party that he represented, instead of rejecting this as a completely undemocratic uh, stunt, uh, began to coalesce behind him. So I think it's that combination of, you know, surging populism at home and abroad and rising authoritarian government that made things look very dark uh, in the winter of 2021-22. Uh, yeah, so this is like a, a story that I'm beginning to, to tell myself, sort of based on, um, on, on your analysis, is that there were three crises in the last 15 years that liberal democracies seemed to fail. Liberal democracies seemed to fail the financial crisis. It was a global financial crash, but it started in the U.S. It started in the, in the heart of liberal democracy. There was a health crisis. There was a global pandemic. And who seemed, at least by the numbers, which I didn't quite believe, but the numbers are the numbers, who seemed to be doing the best of any country in the world? It was China. It was not a liberal democracy. It was an authoritarian uh, Chinese, um, the Communist Chinese Party. And then there was this political crisis um, that at least the Republican Party failed by falling in line behind a wannabe authoritarian rather than standing up and saying, no, it is insane to call for people to march down the street and clap in the Oval Office while they invade the Capitol to theoretically overturn an election. And so there's this moment in the spring of 2022 where liberalism and liberal democracy seems to have failed the, this, this three-part, uh, these, these three crises. What I find so interesting now, and the reason why I wanted to have you on the show, is that I think we're in a moment today maybe six months after things looked really, really dark for liberal democracy. We're in a moment today where it feels like cracks are starting to show, not in the edifice of the US, but rather in the edifices of these authoritarians, China, Russia, and Iran. So I wanna go one, two, three. Let's start with China. It can be hard to see clearly what's happening there because the government's control of media and the internet is so strong, but the gist seems to be that over the last few days, over the last week, Chinese protests have exploded. Uh, the, pop the population is frustrated by severe COVID lockdowns and the country's COVID zero policy. People have stormed the streets. They're posting videos of their protests. Frank, why do you think this is happening now? Well, look, let's back up a little bit. Um, I'll get to China, but, you know, I think that this really gets to the heart of, you know, the argument I was trying to make back in 1989 or 91, which is that, uh, you know, there's a big superiority to a liberal democratic political system over an authoritarian one. Uh, you know, one of the problems with authoritarianism is that it tends to concentrate power in the hands of one single individual. And over time, uh, no matter how smart that individual is, it's almost inevitable that they're going to start making mistakes 
And when you don't have checks and balances, when your policies don't have to be vetted by, you know, the people or uh, legislators or courts or other institutions, uh, the likelihood that you're going to make a big mistake uh, goes up. And then I think the second issue really is one of legitimacy. Once again, if you don't put yourself up uh, for election, if you if there's no mechanism by which you can be held accountable uh, and you start making these big mistakes, uh, people are going to say, why do we need this person You know, running the country? Uh, and I think that that's a weakness that's shared by all of the countries that you mentioned. Now, when you get into the specific Chinese case, that one-man rule is really uh, evident and, and the bad downsides of it. Uh, you know, one of the things about the older form of Chinese authoritarianism prior to the rise of Xi Jinping was that you had uh, collective leadership, at least within the standing committee of the Politburo. There are seven members, and they pretty much have to argue among themselves and arrive at some kind of consensus for any new policy change. But Xi Jinping has systematically dismantled that system, making himself the really the only uh, um, decision maker in the Chinese system uh, to the point where nobody in the standing committee can really question his, uh, his authority. You may have seen at the 20th Party Congress uh, his humiliation of Hu Jintao, his immediate predecessor as the president of China, who was, you know, just pretty brutally escorted out of the room um, uh, just to show that, you know, you can't stand against Xi Jinping. So he has uh, engaged in a policy that for a while looked good, but now is turning out to be really disastrous, which is zero COVID. Uh, so, you know, I and think let me let me let me pause you there because this is the question that I think I get more than just about any other when I talk to friends or sources about China, which is why is this country pursuing a zero COVID policy? What is your understanding of the logic or reasoning behind zero COVID? Well, I think there's several things involved. The first is that China has been unwilling to import any effective Western vaccines. They developed their own vaccine, which only has about a 50% effectiveness rate. And it's turning out that uh, a lot of elderly Chinese are resisting getting even that vaccine. And so, uh, you know, they actually are going to be in a lot of trouble if they simply let COVID rip uh, because they have kept it at bay for such a long time. Nobody has contracted COVID and then recovered from, I mean, you know, around me at Stanford, everybody I know has gotten COVID. I've gotten COVID, you know, uh, my wife has gotten COVID. And so there's just, you know, part of the reason that everybody can go to the World Cup and enjoy, you know, being out in the stands with everybody else is that there's this herd immunity that's developed in most countries that have gone through it, but China has not. And so if they relax no COVID, zero COVID, uh, they're going to have a big problem. They're going to have the same problems that Italy or the United States had early on in the crisis where their hospitals are going to run out of capacity. They've got a much weaker healthcare system in any event uh, than most Western societies do. And, you know, they may, I mean, some estimates say that as many as a million or two million elderly Chinese could die if that disease gets out. And so they've kind of trapped themselves into a policy that looked very, very good. You know, they only had about 5,000 COVID deaths compared to like a million in the United States. Uh, but as time has gone on, uh, you know, it looks less and less good. 
And the big, the really big impact is is economic. Uh, you know, I think at the moment, like a third of the Chinese population is under some form of uh, of, of lockdown. Um, it's hit, you know, like last year, Shanghai was closed for a couple of months. I mean, the, one of their most important economic hubs, nobody could go to work. Um, and, you know, furthermore, there's no prospect of this ever ending, uh, at least in the West. People could say, well, you know, another six months or another year, but by then we'll have vaccines and we can, you know, start to go out and go to restaurants and go shopping and this sort of thing. But with China, it's just not clear what their path out of this is. And so, you know, they're really in a very uh, tight spot because, and, you know, and so I, I guess the final thing to say is that this is the problem with one man rule. You know, this policy is very much associated with Xi Jinping. And it's just hard for him to admit, okay, I was wrong because he's been trying to create this cult of personality around himself that says that he's the wise leader, you know, that Chinese people should be grateful that they've got such a terrific, you know, person running the country. And if he says that this disastrous policy is actually my fault and we've got to reverse it, uh, it's going to undercut his uh, authority pretty substantially. So I think that's why they developed the policy, but that's also why they're stuck with it right now. I'm very curious to know what you think is going to happen now, because there are some people who compare the protests that we're seeing to the Tiananmen Square protests from several decades ago. But after those protests, China liberalized its economy and had explosive growth for the next few decades. And so one could make the argument, and maybe it's the wrong argument, but one could make the argument that they squashed the protests in a brutal way, but then made further protests less likely by liberalizing the economy in such a way that dramatically raised living standards. And so you had the opposite of, say, Shanghai being shut down and no one can go to work. Instead, Shanghai was growing faster than any city in the world and was getting richer faster than almost any city in the world. China at the moment, it seems to me, doesn't have quite the same option. They're dealing not with the possibility of extraordinary catch-up growth, but rather with decelerated growth. They might be in a recession right now. They've hobbled their tech sector. They've uh, enforced all sorts of um, money-losing uh, farming policies uh, on their agricultural sector. Um, they really are in a tough place economically in addition to the zero-COVID policy, in addition to the protests in response to the zero-COVID policy. What is your outlook on China in the next five years as she tries to negotiate all this? It's it's not very promising. Uh, I think their economic model is really run out of steam. You know, for a couple of decades, they had double-digit economic growth year after year, no recessions. Uh, and then in the last five years or so, that rate of growth slowed to about 5 or 6%. Today, they claim it's like around, you know, a little over 3%, but nobody believes that. And they actually could, as you said, be in a recession of negative growth. Um, and they made huge mistakes. I mean, you know, quite frankly, I didn't think I would end up saying this, but they're still a communist country in many ways, you know, where the state is actually in control of all the commanding heights of the uh, economy. Uh, and they've made these mandates, uh, which are really, you know, don't make any sense. They've way overbuilt housing. They were pouring 50% of GDP into investment, most of which was going into apartment buildings, condos that basically had no demand. 
you know, if you go on YouTube and you type in Chinese buildings being blown up, you'll see one video after another where, you know, these 25, 30-story apartment building complexes with a dozen buildings are all being dynamited uh, because they basically wasted all these resources building them. There's no demand for them. So, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, you know, the Chinese will be lucky to eke out 2-3% growth uh, over the next few years, and uh, unemployment is going to be a big problem for them in a way that it hasn't been before. Uh, so that's why I think that the model, the entire model, is really in a significant amount of trouble. COVID has accelerated and sharpened that crisis, but I'm not, I don't think that that's really all there is to it. There, there are many other things that are working against them. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again. Help me do this. Help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's move on to Russia. Um, and actually, it's it's the same, it's, it's exact same theme that you mentioned earlier, which is that you have this leader who has entirely isolated himself from the possibility of being influenced by something like a Politburo. He is entirely ruling the country by himself. It seems like even some of the military leaders didn't even know he was planning on invading his one of his largest neighbors um, in Europe. Uh, and quoted from a piece that you wrote in The Atlantic, quote, far from demonstrating its greatness and recovering its empire, Russia has become a global object of ridicule. 
and will endure further humiliations at the hands of Ukraine in the coming weeks. The entire Russian military position in the south of Ukraine is likely to collapse, and the Ukrainians have a real chance of liberating the Crimean Peninsula for the first time since 2014. End quote. Do you still think that things are going that badly for Russia? Yeah, well, they definitely are. Uh, you know, they are running out of things. Uh, they had over 3,000 tanks at the start of the war compared to Germany and France, each of whom have, you know, only three, 400 each. <laughs> and they've lost, you know, maybe 80% of that tank inventory. Uh, they're down to just a few hundred tanks themselves. And the, the manpower problem is very severe. They're scraping the bottom of the barrel. They're going to ethnic mi minorities. They're releasing, you know, hundreds of convicts from prison uh, to put them on the front lines. And then they started this mobilization on September 21st, where they've just pulled, you know, young men off the streets, sometimes old men, uh, sometimes disabled people. Uh, and they've just thrown them into this horrible maw of Ukrainian power, uh, where, you know, already uh, thousands of them uh, have been killed or wounded. Uh, and so I think that uh, they're in a very tough spot. I do think that the Ukrainians will make further gains as time goes on. Uh, right now, I think we're in a kind of consolidation phase and people are waiting for the ground uh, to freeze so that they can move, you know, uh, their vehicles a little bit better. But I do think that over the winter, you're going to see the Russians thrown out of the rest of Kherson Oblast, uh, probably out of Zaporizhia Oblast. Uh, and um, that puts Crimea, the whole of the Crimean Peninsula, in range of, you know, their artillery. And finally, I want to bring in Iran. Iran, as you've noticed, and many have noticed, has been rocked by weeks of protest uh, following the death of Masa Amini at the hands of morality police. Uh, this country is in terrible shape. Uh, tell us about the similarities that you see between, uh, that you've already brought out between China and Russia, sort of the fact that authoritarian leaders that isolate themselves from influence can sometimes uh, create policies uh, that, incur extraordinary backlash. Are we also seeing that in Iran? Well, sure. And then in Iran, you've got this uh, gender element that isn't quite as prominent in the other two cases where, um, you know, so Iran is a society where a lot of people, young people are being educated, given higher educations, but women make up 60 to 70% of all college graduates in that country, right? So you have this growing pool of well-educated women that are being asked to subordinate themselves in this medieval social system where men have to make all the decisions, not just men, but, you know, this small circle of elderly men. And I think that that was the uh, fuse that was lit, you know, when Masa Amini was killed, um, uh, that, you know, people just aren't going to take it anymore. At this point, it's been two months since that happened. There's been a horrific um, crackdown on protesters with thousands jailed and many hundreds killed. And yet, you know, they keep happening because people can't take it anymore. Now, in Iran's case, this comes on, on, on top of several other crises that have been brewing for some time. There's a water crisis. Uh, there's a banking crisis. You know, uh, there's an environmental crisis. Uh, and 
there's a zero economic growth crisis, a jobs crisis. So, you know, there's plenty of dry tinder for an explosion uh, prior to this. And I think uh, this, um, you know, death in custody was really just the spark that that lit this. And I think that it's just going to be hard for the regime to continue to rule in the way that it has been uh, in the face of, of this kind of anger. So you put all these things together, you have China sputtering, you have Russia sputtering, you have all of these problems, complex intertwining problems in Iran. I finally want to bring in the U.S., because even as all of this is happening in some of the largest authoritarian governments around the world, the U.S. holds this midterm election where the American electorate has the opportunity to decisively defeat the most radical anti-democratic slice of the GOP. These Republicans who say that the 2020 election was a hoax and who are often trying to bring in a new set of state secretaries who have fealty not to the Constitution, but to President Trump. And almost to a person, those members of the most radical anti-democratic slice of the GOP lose their election. And so as I'm looking at all of this, the cracks of the edifices that are appearing in authoritarianism abroad and the cracks in the edifice of domestic um, authoritarian instincts, like it almost makes me wonder, like I'm not, I'm not a full Hegelian. I don't believe there's like a spirit that shapes world events, but it is hard to see all these things happening at the same time and think that it is mere randomness. Do you think it's mere randomness or do you think there's a reason it's all happening at once? It's a, uh, it may be a little bit of, of just luck that, all of these things have been timed in a similar way, but they are connected in, in certain respects. Uh, for example, uh, Putin believes uh, pretty clearly that a Republican electoral victory, uh, either in the last election or coming up in 2024, is really his biggest ticket to success in Ukraine. Uh, with every successive aid vote in Congress, the number of Republicans voting against aid for Ukraine uh, has increased. And I think that if the Republicans had actually pulled off a red wave uh, in November 2022 with, you know, I don't know, a majority of 50, 60 seats in the House, uh, it would have been very hard to keep uh, military aid to Ukraine going. Um, and, you know, because with every vote on aid, the number of Republicans voting against it has increased. And that means that the MAGA wing would have looked like it's on a roll. Uh, Donald Trump clearly does not like Ukraine. He, he prefers Russia. Uh, and the fact that, that that bubble was punctured is really good for Ukraine. Uh, you know, that option of using American kind of right-wing uh, uh, politics to uh, undermine the, you know, the will of the United States to aid another democracy, that really, uh, that threat has been beaten back. Uh, so there is that connection, whether, whether the defeat of authoritarian government, I mean, nobody on the left or the right really admires China all that much, but there's definitely admiration for Putin. Uh, in fact, there's just this video that's been released after Nick Fuentes had, uh, uh, had dinner with Donald Trump, uh, an earlier video where... This, Nick Fuentes uh, is the little young wannabe Nazi, or at least wannabe anti-Semite, who uh, recently had dinner with Ye and Donald Trump. Yes. Right. So in one of, his, uh, one of his rallies, you know, he starts saying, Putin, 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 and everybody, you know, breaks into a cheer. And so there's definitely a pro-Putin wing 
uh, of the MAGO uh, movement that, you know, ties together in one attractive bundle, you know, anti-Semitism, fascism, authoritarianism, you know, belief in, uh, uh, I mean, a, a kind of dislike of American democracy. Uh, and so I think that the defeat of their like-minded friend in Moscow uh, can only discredit people like that and make that alternative you know, it always was a pretty fringe one, but it was one that was looked like it could become more mainstream in the United States. And I think any momentum in that direction has now, you know, uh, been been stopped, fortunately. There's a couple interesting intersections, I suppose, between these stories that I was thinking of as you were talking. It's not just that if Trump had won in 2020, he would not have helped Ukraine. And so if the um, wannabe authoritarian populist had won the American election in 2020, then the actual authoritarian dictator in Russia would have had a much better chance of actually conquering Ukraine or at least keeping the Donbass because there's no way we would have been sending these billions and billions of, do of dollars to Ukraine again and again and again. I guess that's part one. Part two is that if she in China were a little bit maybe less proud and more rational, he would have imported the Western mRNA vaccines earlier he would have mandated the vaccination of Chinese seniors faster. China would not have to do a zero COVID policy to protect its elderly and general population, which means that its overall growth rate would be higher, which means, and maybe I'm getting too far over my skis here, gas prices would be higher. Global demand for gas prices would be higher. And if, if the price for gas were 50 cents higher, I. I truly believe that Democrats would have lost the 2022 election in an absolute landslide because I think the relationship between uh, gas prices um, and uh, incumbent voting is that strong. I want to I want to close on um, some of your your writing and some of your uh, thinking about the U.S. specifically and about the war over liberalism in the U.S. specifically. We've talked a little bit about some of the threats that liberalism faces from what most people recognize to be the right. But you also believe that liberalism faces certain threats from the left as well. What are those? Well, I think that on the far left, uh, there's been a growing intolerance that's been fueled by the rise of identity politics. There's a liberal version of identity politics where identity is simply used as a mobilization tool to demand equal treatment for marginalized groups, African Americans, women, gays and lesbians, and so forth. But there's another version of identity politics that says that identity is the most essential thing that you can know about some someone, uh, much more so than any individual characteristics they've got. And therefore, people need to be seen not as individuals, but as members of groups. And I think that's a profoundly illiberal view. And it also goes uh, together with an attack on other liberal principles like freedom of speech, like due process, where the need to bolster the dignity of you know, um, marginalized groups is so important as a matter of social justice that you're willing to override freedom of speech by canceling or, you know, deplatforming people that that don't support your particular uh, position. Uh, so I think that's really the kind of cultural threat that we face. I think, you know, the the big argument I think is not that this whether it exists or not. I think the real argument is how widespread it is and how dangerous it is, because many people on the left 
tend to say, well, yeah, there's these cases that are exaggerated by the right-wing media, and it makes it seem like an epidemic. Uh, I think uh, my position is kind of in between. I do think that it does certainly get, you know, every every time some college professor says some really stupid thing or a journal rejects an you know, an article and for, for one of these reasons, uh, it does get played up, you know, endlessly uh, in the media. Uh, but there is a real problem. And being at a university, you can see that, that there's a lot of self-censorship on a lot of topics. Uh, people are not willing to say certain things that they know to be true because they simply don't want to, uh, you know, become the object of, you know, a lot of attention from, uh, you know, from kind of left-wing students. And and so I do think that that's had a negative impact on uh, academic freedom. I am not going to sucker you into a conversation about cancel culture when I invited you on the show to talk about China and Iran and Russia. I, I do, I am though interested in your analysis of this movement as a historian. Um, no matter where you are on the ideological spectrum, and the truth is, you know, I, I don't really, I don't podcast that often about sort of cancel culture, um, social justice, uh, wokeism, um, but I'm interested in it as um, almost anthropologically. I'm interested in the fact that clearly since 2014, 2015 or thereabouts, something has changed in the way that Americans talk about census categories, men versus women, uh, non-whites versus whites, um, gender identity, sexual identity, something something has clearly changed. I'm interested why you think the change happened when it happened. Why do you think this period around, say, 2014 seemed to mark the emergence of this new identitarian movement? Uh, I don't have a good answer to that. I don't think that this is completely new. I'm old enough to remember the 1980s. You know, in 1987, Jesse Jackson came to Stanford uh, and led a march, you know, saying, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. Uh, and, you know, there was a big um, movement, you know, to make uh, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, you know, central civil rights issues, and to, you know, in effect, cancel people that didn't go along with that uh, with that agenda. And then in the 1990s, uh, you know, people turned their attention to getting jobs. You had the internet boom. People wanted to get rich. They weren't, uh, you know, students at least were not as politicized. But then these issues became much more sensitive again, uh, in the 2010s and, you know, towards, you know, as you said, after about uh, 2015, there were obvious triggers that really inspired this. So the death of George Floyd at the hands of the police in Minneapolis was a huge trigger that, you know, got many people upset and, and you know, rightly so. Uh, and the tendency of these movements, which I experienced in these earlier years, uh, is to, you know, generalize from specific injustices that you see being done to other people to focusing on perceived injustices right in front of you, you know, and going after the closest authority figure uh, that you can find, which is usually a professor or a university administrator or, you know, something of that sort. So I, I do think that, you know, this also comes and goes in waves. 
And it's interesting, we're kind of replaying a lot of our earlier history on a very rapid scale. So George Floyd leads to defund the police and then, you know, the actual defunding of police in Seattle and, and Portland and San Francisco and uh, and so forth. And crime rates rise and then there's a big backlash, conservative backlash. That's exactly what happened in the 1960s. You know, after the civil rights movement, you had the riots in Detroit and Washington, other places. You had this big uh, surge in crime because of this great sensitivity to police brutality. And then you had the election of Richard Nixon, you know, who rode on a kind of uh, anti-crime, you know, hysteria way. I mean, it wasn't hysteria. There was there was a lot of crime going on. And, uh, you know, it led to uh, a conservative comeback. So I, I just think that we've been through this kind of cycle before. Uh, I hope it corrects itself. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's the nature of democratic politics, that we you know, we can't ever find the correct, you know, balance between these different goods of, you know, social order versus social justice. That's an interesting way to put it. I, it's interesting because in thinking about all the various elements that make up what I'm right now calling the identitarian movement, there are some elements of it that strike me as examples of, you know, pure moral progress. So for example, if um, in maybe the 1950s, um, someone who was for interracial marriage might have been called, might have seemed whatever woke was at the time, right? Because it was an unpopular position to be for interracial marriages. But you've seen extraordinary progress on that, on that point. Extraordinary, what I would call unambiguous moral progress. I think you could say the same for something like the rights of gay marriage. I think you could say the same for acceptance of uh, transgender people and transsexuality. You could say even the same for something that's more material, like um, the wage gap between male and female earners that do the same work in the same year, 20s, 30s, 40s. And then there's other issues, like the question of, you know, is it racist to teach Western civilization or something that seems more cyclical. Like you have, an, there, there, it, it, it has an outburst in the 80s, it sort of dies away, it has an outburst in the 90s, political correctness was a buzz term in the 1990s, no one really talks about it in those terms anymore. It goes away a little bit, it, um, it, it's, it comes out again like a cicada, except now it's called wokeness rather than political correctness, and then maybe it'll dissipate again and just come back. So um, I don't even know if there's a question here, it's more of just a statement, that some of the things within this movement are more like linear progress, more like sort of the Hegelian Fukuyaman theory of history. And some of them seem more cyclical, um, maybe just the, the way that we freak out about certain things. I, I, I agree with that. All right. Well, let's end on agreement. Um, Frank, I really appreciate it and uh, hope to have you back in the pod very soon. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating, leave a review. And don't forget to check out our TikTok at Plain English underscore. That's at Plain English underscore on TikTok. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, 
a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.